That's very humbling. Thank you, man. Hey, uh, we're, we're in a study in uh, the letter that uh, the Apostle James wrote, and we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that somebody just noticed and, and mentioned to me uh, in the bulletin, it's uh, last week's passage. So for whatever reason, we just didn't copy and paste it over uh, the right way. So in your bulletin, it's, it's chapter 4, verses 13, I think, through 16. But today we're looking at chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 6. Let's see if we got the right thing up on the screen. <laughs> Uh, for the passage. Nope. Oh, man. Okay, so, wait. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Okay, good, good. Because woe to us if we have to actually open our Bible, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, it's on the screen. It's in your Bible. It's also in, not in your bulletin today, but that's okay. Uh, we'll live, right? So, let's turn together as uh, James continues to just give us difficult words and hard teachings, but one, again, that we as a culture definitely need to receive. James writes this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord, and together let's say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God even for this difficult word. Last week, um, James said this to us in our passage, which is in your bulletin. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And James was warning us about this challenge of presumptuous living that kind of goes out into the world saying, I've got this, I can do this by my own power and strength. And the, the more healthy you are, the stronger you are, the younger you are, the wealthier you are, the tendency, there's a greater tendency in our life to feel as if I've got this. I can do this independent of God. I don't necessarily need the Lord in my life because I, I have this. I have the means and the capability to get this done. And James says, look, that's presumptuous living. And what seems to us just to be like a, something we should easily be able to say, yeah, I'm going to take this money, I'm going to go over to this town, I'm going to invest it, and a year from now I'm going to make a profit. And he said, be careful living that way unless you say alongside of that, if the Lord wills, because otherwise it's to live by presumption. And today he begins to talk to us about a warning to wealthy people and actually, that's not disconnected at all from the previous context of the last passage, obviously. It's one ongoing letter, so he has everything connected in his mind. And what he's saying, logically connected to last week, is this. You know, the greatest among us that is presumptuous about living like this are those of us that are rich. That the more wealthy we are, the healthier we are, the stronger we are, we live by presumption that we've got this we can live in our own strength we don't really have 
a need. And the main idea I want us to see today is the wealthy in, in this life are warned because there's an enormous temptation to put our hope and our happiness and our trust in created things instead of the creator. And if you're honest, I mean, that's just the fact. Like, we are so tempted. Every single one of us uh, today are tempted to put more hope, more of our happiness, more of our joy and our emotional connect, like, to the things of this earth rather than the one that created the earth and the whole universe. To get it out of order, instead of worshiping the creator, we start to worship and bow down in an idolatrous way, in a sense, to created things. And obviously, if you think about it logically, that just doesn't make sense. Why would you worship the stuff that the artist created or the art instead of the artist? So he warns the wealthy. James 5, verse 1. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And if you've not read much of the Old Testament yet, this is what it sounds like when you read one of the Old Testament prophets. You who are wealthy, weep and howl because of the misery that's about to come upon you. And this is a word of judgment and warning. And again, he's writing to Christians in the Jerusalem context. And this is the early church. This is right after the resurrection of Jesus within just a span of a few years. So he's got in mind Christians, mainly Jewish Christians, living in Jerusalem. And he's saying, be very, very careful. And like a prophet, he's warning them, be very, very careful, the wealthy among you, because in the end, everything you've got is going to rot. It's all going to go away. And in the Bible, throughout the Bible, there's this warning to the wealthy, to the healthy, to the strong, be very, very careful that you don't put more faith in yourselves than you do in the living God. And that's our biggest problem, I think. We, we, this is what the whole theme of last week's message was. Like We are so tempted to live our lives independent from God and setting ourselves up as the king of our own uh, life and the captain of our own life or the, the queen of our own life. And in the Bible throughout is, is this warning. In the Old Testament, King Solomon, if you know anything about him, he was known for his wisdom, he was known for his wealth, but he was also known for his folly, if you, if you look at his life. He was the wisest man in the world in a sense and, and also one of the most foolish men in the world in the way that he lived his life, both with great wisdom at times and at other times, with great folly and foolishness. But he has also got to be one of the wealthiest people that has ever lived on planet Earth. So uh, it's not going to be in the screen or uh, in your bulletin this morning, but I'm going to turn to Ecclesiastes 2. It's right in the middle of your Bible in what's called the wisdom literature. I'm going to read a section and kind of unpack it a bit as we go along because he also gives us this amazing warning about what wealth can do through a testimony of his own life. If you remember, uh, he could have asked for anything uh, from, from the Lord, and it's, he asked for wisdom, and God gave him great wisdom, and not only wisdom, because he asked for wisdom and not wealth, God gave him both, great wisdom and, and incredible wealth. It says this, I said in my heart, this is Ecclesiastes, and he says this, come now, I will test you out with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. He got to this place in his life, even though he had more money and, and, and anything in the world, where he's saying to himself, I've got to figure out what life is about, 
and I'm going to try different things to see if it brings happiness and joy. And he turns to pleasure and the stuff of earth, right? I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. He, he, would, he had access to the greatest wine and alcohol and liquor, and he, he did it. And my heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. I got drunk. I drank wine. I did everything I could to seek pleasure. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. Not, not house, houses. <laughs> have you been to the Vanderbilt estate in North Carolina? Imagine that. I mean, I, I have never seen a place like this except maybe pictures in Europe. Like, it's like one of the few castles in the United States. Imagine that uh, of what he's talking about. Not just a house, but houses upon houses. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Aqu you know, he is... <laughs> I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my, in my many houses. I bought slaves, they had children, I had all these slaves. Now, by the way, he's going to mention a number of things which is descriptive in the Bible, but it's not proscript, prescriptive. The Bible's not saying, hey, slavery's a great idea, you ought to do that. In a, min in a minute, he's going to talk about all the concubines, the, the, the harem that he gathered to himself. The Bible is describing, Solomon is describing what he did. God is not saying, hey, you know, concubines, that's fantastic, you guys should do that. Throughout the Bible, it mentions polygamy, but if you read the Bible in its context and kind of understand, it doesn't necessarily say it's evil uh, like straight up in the Old Testament, but if you read and watch, you see how silly it was, right? Marriage is complex enough with one wife and, and one husband, right? Let's, it gets crazy after that. It's already crazy and wonderful. So, I bought slaves, not condoning, just describing. I also uh, had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I'm the richest guy that's ever lived in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures from other kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delights of children and men. And this is like MTV Cribs on steroids. I mean, this is like unbelievable. The biggest party, I mean, this, this makes like stuff you've seen on YouTube look silly at spring break or, or some rap or whatever. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. And then skipping down to verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done. All the wine I had drunk, all the women I had been with, all the pleasure I had sought, everything I'd seen, everything I'd done, every single thing, and in doing it, all the money, all the houses, all the cars that they had existed, everything that he had, and he said, it was all vanity. It's just empty. A striving after wind, and there was nothing to do to be gained under the sun. Jim Carrey is not a prophet of God, but he said something very similar recently. The actor who obviously, when he was a younger man, spent his life pursuing wealth and pursuing fame and doing uh, amazing, you know, humorous stunts in order to get notoriety. One of the funniest guys ever. And he says this now, I think everyone should be rich, get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. 
Now, that's not possible. We're not all going to experience that. But he's saying, look, I, I'm living it. I have gotten everything I ever dreamed of, more money than I ever dreamed of, more pleasure than I ever dreamed of, more fame than I ever dreamed of. I've gotten everything my heart has ever wanted. And I wish for all of you that you could experience the same thing because then, and maybe only then, you would realize it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. James is warning us. Solomon is warning us from his ancient text. A man living today who has more fame or wealth than probably any of us will ever have is warning us. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And yet we strive and we strive. Jesus also warns us in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 24, and in many other places, Jesus warns. He warns about money all the time. Jesus said to his disciples one day, if you've been around church, you've heard this. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's coming kingdom, the fruition of all of his work and all of his planning that God will bring back everything that is broken and fallen in the world and restore it to that which is, it, it's meant to be. God is going to return in the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God will return in his glory and he's going to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness, in its glory, and finally life will be as it's supposed to be. And so you don't want to miss this. You want to be in the kingdom of God because everything else pales in comparison. He says, I warn the rich because it is very, very difficult for the rich to enter into my kingdom. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why? If you've studied the Bible, if you've read the Bible, you know the gospel is not that you get saved by being poor. So the poor aren't saved because they're poor, and the rich aren't lost because they have money and stuff. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. At other points, Jesus says, you know, um, if you want my inheritance, you look to the one God has sent by faith, anyone who believes in the Son of God, and so forth, John 3.16. So it's by faith, it's by faith in the Son of God, it's not by being rich or poor that you're either saved or condemned, but here's the reality. Wealth, health, strength move us to be more self-reliant, and you don't need God when you have all of your needs met. And so Jesus is warning the wealthy, James is warning the wealthy, because when all of our needs are already met, it is so difficult for us then to, to see our need of God. And until you understand your need of God, Jesus doesn't have anything to really offer you, does he? I say this all the time, if you don't think you're a sinner, then Jesus just doesn't have anything to offer you. You have to agree with God that you're broken and fallen and sinful and that he is the savior of sinners. Otherwise, he doesn't. He doesn't really bring you. That's why he says, only the sick can come. And, and I am a great physician. Only the sick can come. Only the unrighteous. C.S. Lewis, same quote from last week, but a shorter version from Mere Christianity. I, I can't recommend a book more. I mean, Mere Christianity is just one of those books if you, I commend to you. And he says this, the long, terrible story of humankind is that we're trying to have something other than God which will make man happy. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace 
apart from himself because it's just not there. There is no such thing as happiness apart from God. And yet we spend our lives, Solomon did, searching for anything other than God to fill the emptiness and the, and the sadness and the depression and the loneliness with something. Augustine said it. We have a puzzle piece in our heart that only God fits, a God-shaped vacuum, a hole in our heart that that's only God can fill. But we spend our lives, if you're honest, if you're a Christian, this is true of you. If, if you're not a Christian, it's true of you. We spend our lives looking to the wrong stuff, like the country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's us. And if we're honest, we are looking to material things, and the rich then are warned. Money is not the root of all evil. The, the, the Bible, pe- people say all the time, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. That's not actually true. It is the root of all kinds of evil, though. The root of evil, the, the heart of sin is pride and arrogance. It says, I don't need God. I can be independent from God. And money just tricks the heart that's bent that way into believing a lot of foolish things. Money is not the root of all evil, but it, it's a warning. The rich are warned. The rich are warned, but here's the problem with us in America and maybe throughout the world. Almost no one believes they're rich. And so most of you are sitting here today going, phew, this is about somebody else today. I don't have to, yeah, warn the rich, Scott, warn them. Like, James, tell them, tell them all about it. But here's the problem, no one thinks they're rich. Fidelity Investments did this huge survey of their own clients, many of whom are rich, (laughs) and found that more than four out of ten American millionaires say they do not feel rich. Indeed, until most of them have to have at least seven and a half million dollars before they're willing to say, yeah, I might be rich. Fidelity. Some 42% of the more than 1,000 millionaires they surveyed. So they surveyed and say, what does it mean to be a millionaire? I was talking to some friends in the car the other day about this because of the study I just read. And, and one person said, two people actually, out of three in the car, myself, I'm the third, uh, believe that to be a millionaire means you make a million dollars a year. Uh, but Fidelity said this. This is how they, they said, that you had a million dollars to invest at Fidelity after your retirement accounts. So the way they call it, to get in the study, you had to have a million dollars in accounts at Fidelity that were not in a Roth account, were not in a 403B, were in a non-retirement account and not real estate. So, okay, not your house and not your retirement accounts, a million dollars in cash. That's how they defined it. Of the 42% of the more than 1,000 millionaires uh, who had at least that, um, They, they just, most of them did not say they're rich. 42% of them said they were not rich. Every person in the survey, the president of this group said, is wealthy. Uh, the average age of respondents was 56 years old with a mean of 3.5 million of investment assets. And the problem, the reason this guy, not a Christian, a fidelity just expert, said the reason why they don't consider themselves rich is because they're only looking to their peer group to define what that is. And that's our problem. Are you rich? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> well, context does matter. If you make $32,400 or more, according to a bunch of websites I read this week, 
you are in the top 1% wage earners in the world. So on the one hand, yeah, if you make 32400 bucks more or more, you're, you're in the top 1% of earners in the entire world. So I could say, yeah, you're rich. But in America, can we face it, 32000 bucks a year means you're probably, you're actually really struggling to make ends meet. My goodness, at 30, that, that is, you're going, that's not going to be easy. So context does matter. By American standards, though, as soon as you make more than 110000 a year, you're in the top 10%. Now, that's averaged out, and context does matter. It depends where you live, how far your money goes, right? What city you live in, what part of the country you live in, etc. On the coast, things are more expensive. But you get a context. Speaking across the United States, averaging everything in, 110 and above, you're in the top 10%. If you make $300,000 or more a year, you're in the top 1%. That's not assets, that's just yearly income. But in terms of yearly income, you're, in the, you're one of the top 1% wage earners in the world. Are you rich? I'm going to let you decide. If you are, heed the warning. If you think you're not, I would say this. Even if you're poor in America, I would, I would like you to pull yourself back just a little bit and say, as you go to Mexico, as you go to third world countries, as you go around the world and look around, you might say to yourself, yeah, I might be rich. I have air conditioning, not only in my house, but in my car. I have, I have a car. We have four cars right now. That's insane. Many of them are old. Don't judge. Uh, we, have, we have a nice house. Like, I look at my life, and I honestly say, I am, I am really rich. I'm probably rich by American standards. I'm, I am ridiculously wealthy by world standards. Are you rich? Heed the warning. To many of you, though, I want to say this, especially you young people. <laughs> Do you want to be rich? I say this to my boys all the time. Do you really want to be rich? Then heed the warning. It's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Dan Doriani is a pastor and a commentary guy I've been reading throughout this series, and he says this, acquiring wealth to cure the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion, which I often do. Acquiring wealth to solve the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion. When you're tired, of course, you're going to get a cup of coffee. It'll work for a couple minutes, but it does not solve your exhaustion problem. If you're exhausted, you need to rest. You need to sleep. You need to eat better. You need to ex- you know, get some exercise. You need a Sabbath. Coffee is not going to cut it. Do you think being rich will give you acceptance and significance? You think it will. You do. Instagram and social media are feeding us this image that this is the good life. Look at the way people are living. If I had enough bling, enough vacations, enough money to live this way and fund this kind of lifestyle, life would be good. But would you please listen to the people, both by what they say, but also the way that their lives are are just shown and demonstrated. You should expect to find the happiest, most joyful people on the planet if that's true but I'm not sure that's what you find do you think being rich will give you acceptance and significance it's never enough if Solomon said it and found that it's just true it's never enough just this month we've learned that the wealthy there were wealthy people who are paying anywhere from $15,000 to $500,000 to buy their kids a spot into the college of their choice 
Now, what's psychologically weird about that to me is some of the colleges are like, yeah, your kid needed to pay to get in. There's no way else they're getting in, right? It's just true. On the other hand, some of them were paying a lot of money to get their kids into schools that they were probably going to get into anyway. Weird. Fifteen to $500,000 to get your kid into the school of choice. But you and everyone that's in the position to do that has so much money, especially if you're the one paying $500,000 to get your kid into USC. Well, listen, if you've got that kind of money, your kid probably doesn't need to go to USC to be financially at peace, right? Probably good. But that's not what this is about, is it? Getting your kid into USC was not about like, yeah, maybe they can get a good job and actually make money someday. No, that's not about wealth. It's about status. It's about prestige. It's about having the bumper sticker on your car. My kid goes to USC. You know, it's like that. It's like this is what it's about. It's another thing. I am in my peer group. I have to have my child there. It will be an enormous embarrassment if they go to, you know, Orange County Community College. I've got to get them in. It's worth $500,000, and now I'm facing prison. It's never enough. It's just never enough. Money's not enough. Fame's not enough. Wealth's not enough. Influence's not enough. I need that. I need you to be able to go to USC. I will do whatever it takes. We were created and made by God in such a way that we only find our soul satisfaction in Him. We're created for God. We go looking in all the other directions, though. Now, <laughs> that's the introduction to the sermon. Now we're going to dig in to what he's saying in each of the sections. He warns us dangers that come from wealth. There's hoarding over contentment. Hoarding over contentment. James says in verses 2 through 3, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And what's interesting, gold and silver don't really corrode, do they? I mean, you can use stuff to get the tarnish off. But he's saying, you know, it's that bad. Like you, you're looking to hope in things like gold and silver, but I'm telling you, it's not going to last ultimately when God comes again. Your corrosion will be evidence against you. You will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. And it just doesn't make sense, he's saying. James, last week, remind us, like, we're like vapor. We're like mist. We, we come on the scene and look amazing like you know people smoking vape in cars and it just this plume of smoke I just went on and on about it last week just fills a whole car right with with this mist and then it's gone in an instant and he's saying that's what our life is like he sounds like Ecclesiastes vanity vanity James is warning you're putting your hope you're hoarding all this stuff you've got all this stuff you've got a house full of stuff your garage is filled with stuff your car is filled with stuff your trunk is filled with stuff your office is filled with stuff, and at the end of the day, I don't care how expensive it costs you or how much value you place in it, it's going to corrode and rot and rust. Becky's folks had a beautiful house in Asheville, North Carolina, and they loved God. They were two of the most amazing followers of Jesus I've ever known. They were faithful Christians, but like the rest of us Americans, they had a bunch of stuff, and their house was filled with stuff, and her mom cherished these things. I'm not saying worship. She wasn't like this idolater. I'm not, I'm not throwing my mother-in-law under the bus. What I'm saying is, though, like all of us, they had a lot of stuff, and they loved their stuff, and most of it was just small little things she had collected over the years that meant so much to her because of a memory. But when she passed away after dad, and we gathered in that house, and even those five daughters, 
the vast majority of that stuff was thrown into trash cans and auctioned off for pennies. Stuff that she paid hundreds or thousands for was sold for 10 bucks at an auction. And she loved it. And it's gone. Now, the Bible doesn't teach prosperity theology, and you hear that from me all the time, like there's no promise, you're going to get rich if you follow Jesus, but you know what, the Bible doesn't teach the opposite either, it doesn't teach a theology of scarcity, that, you're, that to, to have anything is bad, and that you, know, there, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have anything at all, that's not what it teaches, it teaches though faith in God and contentment, to hold things in the right order, faith Christ first, God first, people first, stuff take their proper order. And most people say money doesn't make you happy, but there's been some studies lately that are interesting. One by Princeton and Purdue University that found out that if you don't make enough money to live on, that if you're not making enough to live on, to pay your bills, to care for what you need, like on a daily basis or a weekly basis, that there actually is an amount of money that can make you happier. If you're not making enough money to pay your bills, and here's the thing, uh, that's a, a moving number because in our culture, we most, you always spend whatever we make, we spend and then some and go into debt. So, but take that away. If you could figure out how much do I need to live, pay my bills, and get what I need, not what I want. If you're not making that amount, then yes, that, there is an amount that can actually relieve your stress and make you feel happier. That's a fact, that according to these re this research. But after that, and that number is lower than you might think, Google it, it doesn't work. If you can't pay your bills, you can't feed your family, you can't like, save for anything, you have no margin, yes, there's an amount. But after that, it doesn't work. Talk to any wealthy person you want to. Hoarding doesn't work. Having more doesn't work in the end. We're called to contentment. After your needs are met, having more money doesn't buy any more happiness. And the call of biblical wisdom is just to be content with what we have. Are you content? Are, are you content? Do you need another house? Do you, do you have to have another car? Do you have to have a new kitchen? My kitchen is fine, but all, almost all of my neighbors have upgraded. <laughs> So me and my wife said, yeah, I'd really like to have a new kitchen. It works. All the, the microwave works. Everything works. The tile's fine. Like, we're just done with it. Contentment. Next, he talks about oppression and fraud over justice and truth. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who kept back, uh, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. Earlier in the, the letter, he was warning us about giving preferential treatment to the rich. If we're having church and a wealthy person comes in and we say, oh, you, you sit here, you get a fine seat, and you ignore the poor person that we're, we're not honoring God and under judgment. And in their day, wealthy landowners, we already mentioned this earlier in the letter, like they, they were oppressing the poor, they're taking advantage, they're taking them to the court. And he's saying, why would you give the rich preferential treatment? Look how they're treating you, they're dragging you into court, and they're suing you. The love of money leads to greed, and it can lead us to taking advantage of the poor. And read Jesus, read the Old Testament, read James. God cares for the poor, and if you have material wealth, you are called 
to have a heart and a care and a concern for the poor. And just to apply this quickly and to move on, for us, the closest example I can think of is how we treat the day laborers that we may employ. You can drive to a number of places around the East Valley and just open your door and people will just jump in to come work at your house. How will you treat them? Are you going to give them a fair wage? Or are you just going to try to get the cheapest that you can get for the day? Like, I'm going to, I, I got those guys to do this work for you, like 20 bucks. Well, you know, when in the going wage was 100. Or I got that landscaper, this landscaper, I've hired him, and he's doing it for like dirt cheap. No one else can even come close. Rather than saying, like, is this a fair wage? And you, I know what you're going to say. Well, it's, the, it's simple economics. That's what the market will bear. If they'll do it, they'll do it. But James is saying, no, don't take advantage of the poor. Think about what would they need to put food on their table for their family and pay them that joyfully. Next, self-indulgence over discipline and peace. Self-indulgence. He just keeps piling on. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. If I could think of the top phrases that would describe us today in our culture, self-indulgence would probably be up there, would it not? We eat when we're not hungry. <laughs> it's like we're stuffed and we go, well, we don't have anything else to do. Let's eat, you know. Uh, we, we, we buy stuff we don't need. Our closets are filled with stuff. We go to the mall to buy more clothes when our closets are literally packed full. We'll go take a bunch to like, you know, <laughs> to goodwill, to get rid of, just so we can make room for the new stuff that we're going to get. Self-indulgence. We upgrade when we don't necessarily need to. We buy a new car when our old one has 30,000 miles on it. It, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. Self-indulgence. I have a nice house. I have air conditioning and heating when it's cold for the two days a year that it actually gets cold here. And not only do I not go hungry, or my children, like I said, I eat all the time when I'm really not that hungry. In fact, I often overeat out of boredom or entertainment and a ton of other reasons. Overindulgence, self-indulgence. And then finally, violence over love. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't even resist you. Do you ever find yourself getting sucked into like Dateline or 2020? <laughs> I do. Those shows, you know, Dateline and 2020, it's always some story about some person has done something crazy and there's some mystery, there's some murder, and somebody has died by being thrown over the side of a, a cruise ship because their husband threw him over the, over the side of the cruise ship. And you're like, well, what, why, what happened? Or somebody's been buried in the desert, and they, and they figure it out, and it's, it's always a spouse almost, or there, there's this big mystery of who did it, and how, and why, why, why was this violence done? Isn't it amazing how often the violence that is done in the world is connected to what? To money, to greed, to stuff, and, and he's warning, be careful, look what money does. It makes you self-indulgent instead of content. It can lead to violence, it can, it can lead to fraud, it can lead to uh, subjecting the poor, it can do all these horrible things and he's warning us, he's warning us, he's warning us, but the problem is nobody thinks they're rich. And I'm hoping today <laughs> that by God's spirit, we are increasingly convinced, you know what, we are. Most of us in this room 
by world standards and by God's standards are incredibly wealthy. And I hope to remind you, the mere fact of having money and stuff is not the problem. And as the followers of Jesus, we can do great good if we live with contentment. What can we do with our wealth with great contentment? If we say, I've really got pretty much what I need, and I've got enough for retirement, my kids have enough for their education, we can take some vacations, I've got margin, now what? What can I do for the kingdom of God? What can I do to serve the poor? What can I do to serve the world in this city? What can we do? Another warning from Jesus as we close, but I mean it to be also a preaching of the gospel to our hearts. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves can break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for there, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Friends, what we're searching for in all of this is only found in in God, in Christ. And we've talked about it already so much, but this this is what our hearts are longing for. Everything that we're trying to find from stuff, from money, from pleasure, it is only ultimately found in God because you were created in such a way by him that he's the only thing that can work that satisfies it. C.S. Lewis had this brilliant quote that if you, aim, if you aim for earth, you miss heaven. But if you aim for heaven, you get the earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, if you make this life all that there is, like this is what my heart's going to be captivated by, this is what I'm going to make life all about, you don't enter the kingdom of God, he says. But on the other hand, if you aim for heaven, if you make your life about the kingdom of God, you get the earth thrown in. You get to enjoy the stuff of earth in ways you would never otherwise get to enjoy it. Your stuff doesn't own you. You own it. But so often, our stuff owns us. When Christ is at the center, and here's the thing, he lived for you, he died for you, he loved you, he's poured his life out for you, that's how you get into the kingdom of God, by looking to him by faith. It's not by what you've done for him, it's not not because you're rich or because you're poor that you get in or out, it's by love and faith in Jesus Christ. And as the followers of Jesus, James is warning us though, don't be duped into believing that the stuff of earth is going to be the thing that satisfies, it just, it can't pay off. Jesus was so rich, and yet he became poor for our sake. Thanks be to God that we may be freed and forgiven. Let's pray.